Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And we want to welcome back a very special guest. Today we have on Andy Norman. Of course, he teaches philosophy and directs the Humanism Initiative at Carnegie Mellon University. He's also known for his guest appearances on the Joe Rogan Experience and the Michael Shermer Show. And he, of course, he's the author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And welcome back, Andy. It's great to have you on. Uh, thanks much, Alan. It's great to see you guys again, and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what's so great, man, before I read a passage? Uh, so your book is still two years later, I would say out of like that five-year period, whatever it is, what's, what is it, 2023? So yeah. since like, yeah, 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 whatever it was, what 20, 2018, 2019, out of that five-year period, it is still my favorite book, man. Yeah, we wow. have it actually yeah. still here dead in the center right next hey. to Deep Work. Yeah. Oh, man, I am honored. But yeah, you guys just made my day. Oh yeah, absolutely, man. It's oh my god. I mean, I I recommend it a lot to people. I even recommend it to my patients. It's incredibly thorough, and the beauty of it is it's incredibly precise, man. There's so much to it that I love. Uh, so uh, we're gonna get into this. So I actually want to quote from an article that Andy just wrote with Lee on psychology today. Uh, so we're gonna get into some of the criticisms of mental immunity, and it was written pretty much as a response to somebody who is a detractor. Mm -hmm. So Andy wrote, well, Andy and Lee wrote, weaponized information is as old as time. Now though, bad actors can micro micro target their messaging and populate millions of social media feeds with content designed to be triggering. They can exploit algorithms that amplify viral content, deploy armies of bots, and coming soon to an election near you, leverage artificial intelligence. Yet Williams would have us believe that misinformation is not widespread that its causal role in social events is either unsubstantiated or greatly overstated. No cause for alarm here, folks. Just go about your business. Yeah. So Andy, can we, first of all, can we talk about what the immunity project, uh, mental immunity project is? And then now let's even get into obviously some of the criticisms about it. Uh, because all of this seems pretty, I guess, obvious that, you know, there is a kind of widespread ca uh, campaign of disinformation, especially when you look at elections. So yeah, what is mental immunity and essentially why are people against it? Yeah, so I, I think that information technologies have fundamentally changed the rules of the game for our minds. It used to be that mind was uh, information was scarce, and we had to basically figure out how to get more of it. Now information is so hyperabundant, the question is, how do we weed, weed it out? How do we weed out the bad stuff? It used to be, how do we accumulate enough good stuff? Now it's, how do we sift through it and, and, and filter out the bad stuff? And uh, in my book, I argued that we, we're not uh, going into this fight defenseless, that each and every one of us uh, inherits an evolved capacity to spot and filter out bad information. So I actually like to call the mind's ability to do that, the mind's immune system, and argue that if we apply the, the concepts and the principles of immunology to the mind and its attempt to free itself from bad information, that we will learn how to, to do the job much better. So I think the concept of critical thinking has served us well for about 100 years, mm -hmm. and it gives us some defenses against bad information, bad arguments, um, pernicious conclusions. But I think to take to take our thinking skills and our uh, information filtration systems to the next level, we actually need to develop a science of mental immunity mm -hmm. and then apply the findings of that science to all get better at, at weeding out the bad stuff. <laughs> and why would there be detractors to such an idea? Again, just like Leon started off saying, it, it does seem like quite glaringly obvious that there is an issue with this overabundance of information uh like you said 
we have to be able to sift through it, find out what is true, right? Uh, And obviously there's such an abundant amount of information. How do you know what's true, right? How can you- uh, And it spreads quickly. And it spreads quickly. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it spreads virally. Um, so we're using the concept of viral misinformation a lot these days because we, we see information go viral on the Internet every day. We know information can spread virally. So some of us are really leaning into this. So when you call information spread viral, you're using a metaphor, an analogy, and you're saying, hey, the way information spreads through populations is kind of like the way diseases spread through populations. Um, now, some people, some scholars are very threatened by this analogy. They, they worry that we're medicalizing thought, right? So, so early attempts to medicalize psychology resulted in a lot of people being shut away in insane asylums, right? And, it, and there, were, there were some real awful abuses of the early attempts to understand the human mind. And now people are worried that if we apply the language of of, uh, virology and the language of epidemiology and the language of immunology to our thinking, that we're gonna get get unintended and possibly harmful effects. I'm trying to do my best to understand where they're coming from sympathetically here. Um, I, I don't agree with them. I think that these analogies are essential and I think they're gonna, they're actually bringing about a a new paradigm that dramatically, look, think about it this way. The science of immunology dramatically improved our odds of fighting off smallpox and diphtheria. The science of cognitive immunology, the science of championing with Lee and and a number of other scholars from around around the planet, we think that that's going to fundamentally change the rules of the game in ways that make us better able to cope with infodemics. Mm-hmm. epidemics of bad information. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so and it's so interesting since you mentioned psychology. I mean, it makes me think of the medicalization of our field. Well, I'm a psychotherapist. So it makes me think of the medicalization of our field. So there's such a big pushback against it. Uh, a couple of, I think it was months ago, I guess, uh, probably, I don't remember, maybe October, we had on Andrew Skull. So he's a researcher. Uh, he researches mental health and again, the medicalization and of it and the medical model of mental illness. And so I, I agree with a lot of the things that he says. And he says, well, you know, a lot of the treatment is kind of, uh, it's, it's sort of, it's not that it's unfounded, it's unpredictable and it's hard to know like what works for whom and et cetera, right? But I think the understanding here is that, I, I, here's what I'd want to ask and I want to relate this to cognitive immunology. What is wrong with medicalizing something? So if we're medicalizing, yeah, so this is the thing that I always come up against in terms of mental health and mental illness. What's wrong with medicalizing mental illness? I don't understand. So if we're saying, okay, this person has this particular illness, disorder, whatever you want to call it, and then we have a treatment that's highly likely to work. Yes, it's not 100%. You have to tailor treatment just like we tailor medication for something like depression, but it it works. It helps people. So I, I just, I don't understand what's the pushback against it. So what? We medicalize. Why is it a bad thing? Um, I, I love the, I love your question, and I think it's uh, I, I want I want to use the question in the same way you do uh, rhetorically to to open people's minds to this new way of thinking about these things. Uh, absolutely, um, but your question is also posed in a way that is is designed to sort of elicit from me a better understanding of my detractors. So mm-hmm. here, uh, again, trying to kind of understand to the best of my ability, those who who don't like what Lee and I are trying to do in this space. Um, 
maybe start with this. So some of the people applying this science that we're promoting are talking about uh, inoculating minds. So it turns out there's like 60 years of research now on how you prime minds in ways that make them more resistant to misinformation. So, and, and let me let me describe a, a perfectly innocuous example, but then ask invite you to think about maybe more Orwellian or Machiavellian applications, right? So you turns out you can inoculate kids against the worst conspiracy theories by inviting them to design their own spoof conspiracy theories. Mm, interesting. So you, you, have you heard about uh, birds aren't real? No, no. Yeah, I've heard. Oh, them. okay, cool. Yeah, there's that? like robot birds spying on people. The, the birds aren't real. Something. Oh, like oh yeah. What, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's it's a spoof conspiracy uh, theory that basically says uh, the government killed off all the birds and replaced them with drones um, mm. years ago, and they use them to spy on us and surveil us. And okay, so every, it's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. But they basically thought it through to the point where they can answer any objection you might have to it. Um, because basically, if you double down and triple down and quadruple down on any ridiculous idea, you can always defend it one way or another. And, mm -hmm. the, and the real trick here is to get people to understand how the conspiracy theories get their hooks into your mind and how you spot them so that they don't get their hooks into your mind. So if you have kids play with spoof conspiracy theories, like invent your own conspiracy about um, uh, chemtrails. Or mm -hmm. sorry, actually, what 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 you'd really do in a classroom is invite them to design their own conspiracy. You, you tell them a little bit about how conspiracy theories work, and then you say design your own conspiracy theory. And at the end of the week, uh, we'll get together and you try to persuade all your classmates that this uh, conspiracy is, is really real. Mm -hmm. Kids just have a blast, and they know it's and they know it's all in fun, and they know it's ridiculous. But they learn what consp conspiracy theories look like and how they work and some of their basic structural features. So when they encounter a really dangerous one, like QAnon, mm -hmm. go, oh yeah, conspiracy theory, go away. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I think that's a beautiful example of mind inoculation. You actually have to expose kids and people generally to, to weakened form of bad ideas so that they can develop resistance to the more dangerous versions of those ideas. Does that right. make sense? I love it. No, yeah, you, you get to see the structure of how sort of a by, by creating your own conspiracy theory and then also trying to back it up, you could kind of then see what are the little layers that might make up, for for example, what would what would um, let you be able to rationalize and make something true that isn't true in the first place. And you then bet. you get to then question things that, you know, you're you're not sure whether they're true or not, but by seeing these layers kind of arms you against that kind of information right right yeah. you, you you got it and and what what one of my colleagues uh melanie tressa king who i encourage you to invite on the show if oh you she's know. she's coming on next week oh yeah she's terrific so one of the things she argues is that we've created these uh learning environments we call them schools where basically you get a steady stream of what the experts consider to be good information mm -hmm. and you're supposed to just sit quietly and absorb it all write it down in your notebooks and then spit it back on tests but if you spend all our time handing people good information and telling them to cling to it, then they don't learn how to spot bad information and let go of it, mm -hmm. right? So you actually have to bring bad ideas into the classroom and get kids playing with them right. so that they get good at spotting them. Uh, ask Melanie about that. She, she, she's, I think, the best best in the world at, at this yeah. kind of 
Um, so anyway, just back to what I was trying to say, this is an example of, of, of mind inoculation, what researchers call mind inoculation, and it's beneficial, it's, it's good. But now imagine um, an evil government that doesn't want you to, to believe uh, heretical thoughts. And they try to inoculate you against all heretical thoughts to, in order to control your mind. Sure. Clearly, that would be worrisome, right? Mm -hmm. So the science, which offers so many opportunities to do good and improve our world, also has misapplications. Mm -hmm. and I have some sympathy for those who worry about these because they're they're not off base to worry. Um, but I don't but but think about imagine somebody way back in the early days of germ theory saying, we can't believe in germ theory because if it's true, some people might weaponize germs. Mm -hmm. So, so let's not develop um, vaccines. Let's let's not develop medicine to combat disease. Oh, I see. So, is the thinking here that if we start thinking about it as a virus, that it's something that somebody can kind of take hold of and sort of you? Okay, I see. I see. So, I guess that's kind of the thinking there. So now, I, now going back to and again, there's so many connections here. But going back to the medicalization of psychotherapy, I think the idea is that people don't like to be diagnosed with brain diseases. So the thinking is, it's like if you know if these are just problems in living, then we can control them, we can manage them. Uh, they're easier to sort of handle through something like like talk therapy, which I mean, obviously I do, but I don't think oftentimes it's enough. So I think for a lot of people, the idea that your biology is in control of you is uh, not just disheartening. I think it's kind of shocking. And then in terms of obviously, you know, what you can and can't do, if somehow, somehow uh, kind of somebody manages a hold of it, right? Or somebody manages like to kind of puppeteer you in some ways, right? That becomes terrifying. Plus, if, if I had to think about what, a, for example, what a detractor also might think in, in terms of something you mentioned, uh, maybe Orwellian, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I suppose somewhere down the line, as mental immunity is is recognized, right, and it's a science that is widely accepted, I could imagine, I suppose, if I had to play around, maybe a, a politician could then start using certain uh, maybe labels like, oh, uh, this person's or this group's, um, uh, they, they have they're spreading infectious thoughts. Uh, this or this is a sort of a. Uh, viral uh, spread of uh, uh, malicious ideas that we need to protect ourselves from. However, uh, if you think about it a little bit further, I mean, of mental immunity, for, anyway, the science of it would protect against that. It's it's like, you, uh, if you think about it, right? Well, you know, uh, I want to add, because I want to actually go into the article a little bit, right? So the criticism is essentially that we actually don't really know and can't tell what the misinformation and disinformation is. So Andy, can you speak a little bit about that? Because apparently the markers aren't actually evident, according to the critics. Yeah, so so just to, to provide the backstory, one of, one of our colleagues, uh, Sander van der Linden, is at the University of Cambridge, and he wrote a book called Foolproof. Um, and it's all about how to sort of teach your mind how to spot misinformation better. And he, he's probably the world's top uh, researcher in, in this area. In fact, by objective criteria, he is. So he wrote this book, Full Proof, which I recommend. Uh, he's wonderful. I think I also encourage He's coming on the show. Okay, <laughs> fantastic. Um, but then a philosopher named Dan Williams wrote a scathing review of his book uh, for the publication Boston Review. Um, we contacted the boss, Lee and I contacted Boston Review and said, hey, there, there's certain aspects of this review that are patently unfair. We, we'd like to reply to it. Um, and the editors say, sure, uh, you know, write us, write the reply and we'll consider it. 
uh, we wrote up the reply in in a way that we think exposes some of the fallacies in Dan Williams' critique of Vander Linden. Hope this doesn't sound like too much like uh, inside baseball for no, no, go for it, geek, yeah, academic yeah. geeks. Um, but uh, so the Boston Review turned turned us down, uh, and so we ended up publishing it on Psychology Today instead. But mm -hmm. the but the substance of the issue is that Williams faults Vander Linden for saying that misinformation has certain identifying characteristics. Mm -hmm. So in Vander Linden's lingo, misinformation has certain fingerprints that you can, we can learn to recognize. So for example, a lot of misinformation uses emotional manipulation, right? So if, if you say, hey, there are problems with our, our electoral system, that's a very dispassionate way of saying it. But if you say the election was rigged, right. you're, you're, you're trying to trigger emotional responses. And sometimes, of course, it's good to trigger emotions, strong emotions, but a lot of times people try to trigger our emotions um, so that we can't think for ourselves. Right. And I would argue that Donald Trump has been using mind manipulation techniques to spread the big election lie for mm -hmm. a number of years now um, and, and other things that he wants people to believe. I mean, he, he's, a, I mean, he's a guy who understands mind manipulation intuitively, right? He's a lifelong salesman who has worked out ways to hijack people's uh, higher level thinking and get them to go along with him. Um, Sander, Vander Linden, Lee and I want to protect people against mind manipulation. So we want to give people the tools they need to spot it and say, hang on a second here. I don't buy it. Right. Yeah. And then, so what I love is that in the article, you guys point out that it's not essentially that these are the criteria are not fundamentally, uh, I guess they're not fundamentally guides to what is and isn't disinformation. It's more like they're markers and red flags. So the idea is it's something to look out for, because I think ultimately, and I mean, going back to your work and obviously your book, I mean, fundamentally, it's the evidence that matters most. I think what you're saying is that like, yes, these are markers, but they're only markers to get you to get your like antennas to go up and to go, wait a minute, hold on. I should look into this a little deeper. Would that be right? You got, you got it. So Dan, Dan Williams is a philosopher by training, same as me and Lee. Um, and ideally, so, so the, the, the perfect solution to the misinformation problem would be a, would be a, a criterion that you could all, all, apply simply and straightforwardly. And in every case, it would sort information properly into the good, good information or bad information. But, but there's no such rule. And, and Williams is smart enough to know that. And he knows that any attempt to sort of draw a very bright line between good information and bad is going to prove problematic. Um, but Sander knows that too. And so uh, Williams's complaint is that, you know, Sander's attempt to distinguish the two is destined to fail. Sander's got a more modest conception of what he's trying to do. He's trying to give us helpful tips for at least raising questions or flags, right? Like, wh when should you at least think twice or maybe think a third time before you accept something? Here are some of the things to look for. It's not a bright line. It's not a, a set of necessary, what philosophers call necessary and sufficient conditions for something being misinformation. It's right. basically an attempt to say, here are some of the things, the techniques people use when they want you to believe something that isn't really true. Be on the lookout for them and, uh, and 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 put and give extra scrutiny to to the ones that 
employ these techniques. That makes sense. Yeah, of course. And I'm actually curious, uh, what are some of those characteristics or things that we should look out for, you know, that uh, sort of characterizes misinformation? Yeah, so so Sanders, the the real authority on this, so you should ask him to go into more depth. Yep. But emotional manipulation is is one of them. Actually, he identifies six things, uh, clues that you might be being manipulated by by information or misinformation. Mm -hmm. One of them is, you know, does this evoke a strong emotion in me? Better be careful. Um, and the six of the six of them each starts with a letter, and he creates the acronym DEPICT, D-E-P-I-C-T, to represent the six things to kind of keep it, to, to watch out for. And because I don't have it right in front of me, uh, I'm going to... Oh, I can. Oh, I can. It's okay. I got you. I got you. M mention one of them, and, I'll, and I can speak a little more about it. It's just that my memory doesn't always... Yep, yep, oh, yep. That's fair. Let me just scroll through the article for like two seconds. Uh, let me see. Uh, yes. Uh, right, Trump's policy. But just you know what? Very quickly, while you're looking for the, um, as far as you know, information that causes sort of a strong emotional reaction in you, I'm very, uh, I, I, I love that because I've noticed that there have been a lot of times that I personally have made, uh, decisions maybe I shouldn't have when you know, uh, if I know, like for example, if anytime I didn't notice that something created a strong emotional reaction to me in the sense that it's not that I didn't notice I was having an emotional reaction. It's just that I wasn't, how should I put this sort of conscious in it, of it in a way it sort of uh, was automatic as if I wasn't uh, kind of putting the brakes on it. Right. And then, yeah. then I would make all sorts of decisions that kind of, uh, I don't know if I thought about it later, I, I wasn't sure if it was the right thing and being cognizant of that uh, kind of lets you know, okay, maybe I should question this feeling I'm having instead of kind of going with it. Right. So here, yeah. here, here's the model. So just before we continue. Okay. So it's discrediting emotion, polarization, impersonalization, conspiracy, and trolling. There we go. Um, so take impersonation, for example. Um, that, that's a technique where you pretend to be expert, say right. an expert in something you're not really an expert at. So, so sometimes uh, climate denialists will trot out somebody who happens to have a PhD and is willing to say, yeah, we're not quite sure yet that climate change is really caused by humans. I mean, that, that it, it's a misleading tactic, and it's one of the ones Sanders flags so that we can all get better at spotting and, and weeding out misinformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and then the other ones, uh, when we're talking about, I would say, here's the other thing that I really like, I actually want to go to, I want to take another tract or track. Uh, so with Lee, how he distinguishes between misinformation and disinformation. So I guess before I even get into that, oh man, I'm sorry. I just have so many questions on my mind. Uh, okay. So let me just actually focus on this. Okay. So Lee classifies misinformation as literally just information that is, that doesn't have an intent behind it. Meaning it's just something that somebody believes is just inaccurate. Whereas disinformation is manipulative and it's meant to deceive. So when we think about cognitive of immunology and we think about uh kind of the viral spread of, oh spread of it right would you say how would you we kind of divide that and how where would we see the barrier between disinformation and misinformation and somebody may ask well what's the real problem right uh because people believe all sorts of stuff that isn't true all the time but how is it a virus right are we saying that there's a sort of manipulative intent behind it or are we just saying that oh well it's just a bunch of misinformation you know spread like profusely and i mean all we really do it really need to do is just put out the facts right so so 
it turns out to be tricky to create a really useful set of, of categories. So uh, I, I think um, broadly speaking, there's there's a whole universe of information. Right. And within that universe, some information is what I'll call problemat problematic and others is relatively unproblematic. So it's fine to fill up your minds with the unproblematic information. These are truths, use, true, useful, enlightening, moralizing ideas. Everybody can agree those things are the kind of thing we should believe. So, so treat all of those as unproblematic and that's the good stuff. That's the stuff we wanna fill our minds with. And then there's problematic information. Some of it's problematic because it's false. Some of it's problematic because it's true, but misleading, right? Like, so if you only give part of the story and don't provide the larger context, sometimes you mislead people to embrace a false narrative, even without saying anything false. Right, right. So that's another form of problematic information. Then there's information that incites people to violence. Mm -hmm. That's, in, that's uh, insightful information. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I-N-C-I-T-E. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. not insightful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Insightful, yeah. Um, so I think information can be problematic for a whole bunch of different reasons. And and uh, we need to be attuned and, and sensitive to the way in which information can be any of those things, problematic in any of those ways. And we should be trying to spot information that's problematic for any of those reasons and so and, and take um, takes white, white supremacist ideas about their own racial superiority. Mm -hmm. One way to refute such ideas or one way to dismiss such an idea is to actually look at the science and say, see, the science behind your claims is bullshit. Mm -hmm. it, there's no evidence that your race is superior to any other race. But another set of grounds for for rejecting such an idea is no good can come from ideas like that. It just mm -hmm. makes people feel superior and entitled to to harm others and to, right. to trample on other people's rights. So I reject the idea of white supremacy, both on factual grounds and on moral grounds. And first and foremost, I reject them on moral grounds right. because it's not a useful idea. It's not an idea that is uh, is going to create harmony uh, among people. So I reject it for that reason. So all of which is to say there are many different kinds of information that are problematic and we should try to develop um, an ability to spot all the different kinds. Yeah. And I like... Well, just one last thing about mis versus sure. disinformation. So there are people out there who just learn something wrong and pass it on unwittingly. Right. And so uh, I heard of an article in the New York Times that I passed on to others. And then later I realized that it, it was had to be retracted. And then I had to go back and apologize for forwarding it to others. So yeah. I was passing along. Nobody, I think, in that case, tried to, tried to fool anybody. But bad information got passed anyway. That's what Lee and I call, and most researchers call, misinformation. Um, but other information is deliberately manipulative, deliberately misleading. Yeah, and I think... Yeah, I was going to say, so, so it seems that that's the foundation, according to Lee, but go ahead. Well, Lee's point is that if we allow, if we fail to call out, when we fail to call lies, lies, when we're so nervous that we might, so when you call something a lie, you're saying it's false and you're saying somebody intentionally right. issued a falsehood because reporters don't often have enough to validate that it's intentional manipulation they'll often describe it as misinformation just to be safe right 
but when we don't actually call out habitual liars, we don't actually say that's a disinformation spreader. That person is deliberately trying to uh, make you a sucker. When we mm -hmm. don't call that out, those people flourish online. Right. So I think one fact here uh, can help. Turns out somebody did an analysis and it turns out that a ridiculous percentage of vac of COVID misinformation was spread by 12 people. Yeah, Marcola, one of them. We talked about that last week, yeah. And, and those 12 people were getting rich yeah. because there was a market for for bad information. Now, did they in fact know that they were spreading bad information? I don't know. Does Robert F. Kennedy realize he's spreading vaccine misinformation? I don't know if he's being, if he's just a dupe himself or whether he's actually trying to fool people. So in a way I should be agnostic, right? I, sh I should just call it misinformation. Sure. But there might be something more nefarious at work there. And a small number of people who don't give a damn about whether or not they have to fool you to get rich right the, the true disinformation spreaders they're responsible for a large fraction of the bad information out there and it's time we went after realized that they're commit they're waging information warfare on us right, right. And it's time we we woke up and, and fought back that's lee's point just the way i summarize it right, right. And, and we do have to be able to you know this i understand the disc, uh, discreditation is a uh, discrediting someone rather is is could be uh, a manipulative tool but uh like it like it said in the article it could be also to sort of reveal some truth as well mm -hmm. and uh, i think these people do need to be discredited only because the things that sort of make uh sort of a, a particular population or demographic believe that what somebody is saying is true i mean some aspects of it that I definitely recognize are one, how confident someone sounds when they elicit that information yeah. Two, how many people actually buy into the fact, uh, Already. buy into what they're saying. How many people do you have behind you that believe in the same thing? It, it adds credibility. Mm -hmm. And, um, I forget the third one. Oh, well, but my point is still illustrated here that there are certain things that go into what makes, uh, people sort of hear something and then it sounds like it's true to them, right? right. Uh, among the many things discussed in your book and the article as well. Yeah, wait, can I actually add to that? I want to actually Please. add a psychological point. Right? So what's so interesting, and by the way, this is a super fucking controversial point. Um, so, but, but, it, but, but it's true. I, I think the kind of research, clinical work, et cetera, sort of shows it to be true. Uh, so the thing is like for people to be, and again, I hate to even say this because I know there's going to be so much blowback. Um, so the, the thing is a lot of times, and this goes into the literature on narcissism, I'm going to actually speak about this more clinically. And so what you're seeing when a lot of people are deceived is there's this already sort of a, a foundation or a priming, right? And so what I mean by that is, let's say you have somebody who is like a charlatan or somebody who, eh, oh my God, okay. So I just, I know the criticisms are coming. Okay. So somebody, I'm just going to push through. So somebody who's a charlatan and somebody who's telling you, look, you know, the media is lying to you. Uh, let's say, you know, you can't trust the government. Uh, do you, let's say, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes that you aren't told. Uh, and, you know, I actually care about you guys. You know, I find that like, for let's say you're going into like new age territory and you know people are special you know we're all gods of some sort or whatever you often have people who automatically already actually believe that so the misconception is that for like gurus and i know we're not focusing particularly on it but i do want to get into it uh so for somebody like a guru what they do is they kind of tell you what you already kind of suspect or what you already wish to be true so yeah. a lot of the times and i've seen this much in, in clinical work is that a lot of times the people that do fall for it so in clinical i wouldn't call this clinical it's more like pop psychology but is a term 
that's prominent. Uh, they call it love bombing, right? So who falls for love bombers, right? These people who are really effusive, they're really overly romantic, uh, they're pretty giving, they make you feel like you're like the best person and the most beautiful person in the world, right? It's actually a lot of times people who already think that about themselves. So the misconception is actually the opposite. And the misconception is, no, no, it's actually people with low self-esteem they, they, that they target. I'm like, no, no, no. So people with extremely low self-esteem actually will never buy into that, usually, usually. So what happens is if somebody really feels like crap about themselves and you're like, hey, no, you're like the most beautiful person in the world, they're going to be like, oh my God, this guy's full of shit. Has he seen me? They're actually not going to believe it. So it's actually the opposite. It's people with a ton of self-doubt and who have the wish to actually be beautiful or the wish to be special or incredibly smart, intelligent or whatever. So you have somebody yeah. who fills that vacuum like a Donald Trump. So if you have on the one hand, a group of, let's say a rural population, you know, hypothetically, and let's say they think, oh, you know, uh, these elites think that they're better than us, but we're real America, right? We're the bread and butter. We're the backbone of America. And here comes Trump. And he says, yes, you guys are the special ones. I've been around those other people. They're idiots. They're bloodsuckers. They're the ones who are taking from you. You guys are the ones that we should be focusing on. Everybody's like, yeah, you see, we're America. And I'm like, yes, of course they fall for it, man, because he tells them exactly what they already probably believe. Well, or want and want to believe um, yeah. as well. Um, yeah. So it, it really helps to sort of study the way cult leaders work. Yeah. Right. So what a cult leader will typically do is they'll find somebody who's kind of lonely and disaffected, who, who needs to belong to something, is looking for meaning. And they sometimes they butter them up saying you're special. Um, maybe they they uh, they shower them with love. I think that works in some cases, at least. And then they start to get you to distrust all other sources. They give you a, a simple story about what's wrong, what everything that's going wrong in your life. It's like, you know, they are 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 conspiring against you, um, and I alone can fix it. And and uh, I see through the veil of of lies that they're putting up. So if you just become, if you follow me and trust everything I say, I can let number one, I can let you in on a big secret. Right. Mm -hmm. And you become special like me because you see through it all. Um, but I can free you from all that. But but you can't call home anymore. You can't talk to your parents. You can't talk to your old friends. So cult leaders try to isolate you from other information sources so that they alone will be believed. Right. Often because, they're, because their arguments really don't withstand scrutiny. And if you're listening to other sources, too, you'll see through their lies. What's interesting about... Um certain tactics cults will use is that there are certain things they could say to you that sort of sound true. For example, say somebody said to you, uh, um, anytime you've uh, tried to be quote unquote successful or move up in the world, do you, did you notice that your friends don't accept that? Like anytime you try to make a change, they try to keep you at the same level, right? Your parents too, they don't want you to succeed uh and then maybe they'll use uh, maybe something you've told them like uh, uh i remember i told them this thing i wanted to do and they didn't like that idea and so they kind of spin it to say well of course they're not going to like that idea that's your that's your purpose that's the thing you want to do and of course they're not going to accept that you have to do it without them and of course you know push them away and and do what you need to do anyway and uh yeah. your your concept of the world is is wrong and i'm going to give you a new concept of the world uh, and where which you'll be flourishing and there's all these promises and it's it's quite interesting because they could use little bits of truth but then yes and you can see how something it. like that would be really seductive right and yeah. could really meet emotional needs the it's all it always ought 
ought to give you pause when somebody's trying to get you to rely exclusively on them and yeah. or, or or insiders. Um, and if they're using they in some vague, undefined sense to hint at you know the, the vast cabal of people who's conspiring against you, you can be ninety nine percent certain that it that it's BS. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and if you no, and if you can tell, by the way, Alan was a great cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> Once upon a time, no, I'm just kidding. Of course not. No. You're a natural, Alan. You're a natural. <laughs> you know what? Maybe no. I'm just Alan, you just, yeah. Alan, you just use your powers for good, okay? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so yeah, going back to uh, so yeah, uh, the thing that I I feel like uh, we can kind of talk about and something that I don't feel like I still have a kind of understanding of. So, okay, so the the belief that a lot of this stuff isn't as widespread as it seems to be. So, how come that's the argument that this is sort of a false moral panic? Yeah. Uh, so moral panics also have a long history of disorienting people. Uh, you think about, you know, the witchcraft panic, right? The witches are spoiling crops and that kind of thing. Um, have you guys invited Steya Hafwis onto your show? Yeah. One of the world's uh, experts on the history of witchcraft beliefs mm -hmm. and how they spread uh, as a friend and I guess future guest on your show is uh, wonderful. So uh, hopefully, uh, so no, hasn't gotten back to us yet, but um, we'll uh, see. Still, work, mm -hmm. still working on it. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, he, he's able to show that when witchcraft beliefs spread in early modern Europe, that it was mm -hmm. essentially uh, an epidemic of, of bad ideas. Those ideas were essentially mind viruses mm -hmm. that spread through a population and made people do crazy things and sometimes burn and stone and right. drown their, their own family members and and community members so um which, which is a really nice contribution to the whole literate to the whole science of you know how, how do we understand these crazes and where they come from and how we should treat them mm -hmm. um, i think uh Stan makes a wonderful case that uh bad ideas essentially are mind parasites mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, not not like mind parasites but real honest to goodness mind parasites I, I could see that. I mean, honestly, uh, besides having read your book, I mean, there are also so I didn't expect to sort of go in this direction. But like, let's say you even sort of dive into, let's say, Eastern philosophy, right, a little bit, and maybe look at concepts like uh, like the ego, right? So essentially, uh, what what is that? I mean, I suppose there are different working definitions of it, depending what discipline. Oh, there are thousands, of course, yeah. uh, say from an uh, Eastern philosophical perspective identification with uh, thoughts or beliefs, making them the same as who you are. However, yeah. it is a false construct. Um, that's not who you actually are. Therefore, um, believing in a particular belief or idea that could actually have terrible consequences in terms of, for example, maybe arguments with people or if you or if you believe that you're correct in something that could lead you to sort of fight to the death, uh, whether figuratively or literally for yeah. those ideas and in that yeah. sense ego or particularly uh thoughts i could see could be like uh parasites that you just sort of uh that com compel you to do something that may not be um you could say objectively uh in your best in or in other people's best interest in in regards to harmony mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i'm seeing connections here with your work on 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 overcoming ego uh, yeah. Alan, um, I, I'm, I'm eager to learn more about about your work there. But but um, but yeah, so there are lots of uh, Eastern 
uh, mystical traditions, religious, philosophical traditions that argue that, you know, growing too attached, when you think of yourself as a something that's utterly separate from the world and try to protect it against the world, it, your thinking starts to become distorted, as I understand. Right. Um, and and to really prevent that kind of distortion, you have to overcome your ego. You have to outgrow the idea that that uh, you're entirely separate from the rest of the world and distinct from it. Uh, I'm probably not doing it justice here, but no, uh, that's, that's no, that's that's great. No, and in fact, uh, I was hoping maybe you you could speak on more of how you know these uh, um, certain ideas can be uh, parasites. Yeah. I, I just saw a parallel there there that um, I just absolutely, and I and I would like to to elaborate on that. Um, so I argue that well, so we all grow attached to the beliefs we have. Right. right. So you believe something for a while and, you know, life goes on and you think, ah, I must be doing things mostly right. And so you like the beliefs you have. And often we end up becoming very attached to the beliefs we have. And we become threatened by any information that would disturb those beliefs. Right. So um, psychologists have all kinds of words for this confirmation bias. Um, we, we, we reason in motivated ways to hang on to the beliefs we have. Denial. Um, denial, right. Yeah, psychoanalytic um, terms. And and I like to, the the advice I like to give is treat your beliefs as as house guests, temporary house guests that might be useful for a while, but you'll eventually find that if you take that belief too seriously, it has exceptions or that it will mislead you. Almost every rule that has ever been formulated explicitly has proven to have exceptions. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the same is true for almost any idea. Any right. idea at all will prove to be maybe quite useful or maybe true within certain bounds. But when you take it beyond that, like you take Newtonian physics, 100% awesome, great, beautiful, predictive, useful, all of those things until you reach relativistic speeds approaching the speed of light and then it all goes haywire. Right. Even Newtonian physics isn't absolutely true. I think this is true of all of our beliefs. Um, hold them lightly, because if you cling to them too lightly, you're going to end up um, denying yourself opportunities to learn. Like right. if imagine Einstein had clung so, so uh, tenaciously to Newtonian physics, it would have prevented him from discovering relativity. Yeah. He needed a certain flexibility of mind, a certain willingness to treat beliefs as, as uh, okay, um, yeah, these are fine as far as they go, but maybe they don't go so far as I think. Right. And we all, I think we should all do that with all of our beliefs all of the time. And to the extent that we do that, we become more persuadable. We, we, we learn more rapidly. We become better citizens, more tolerant of other points of view. We become yeah. more patient in conversation and i think we we all need to kind of get used to the idea that every single one of us has has absorbed bad ideas and integrated them into our thinking and every single one of us should make a habit of finding one or two things every day to unbelieve to let mm. go of <laughs> wow. 
You know, you know what's so interesting about that? I actually want to give a quick anecdote. So it's a conversation that Alan and I had yesterday with another one of our friends, Mike. So uh, I'm gonna, this is based on, I guess, to some extent, I want to say the Michael Shermer term, giving the devil his due. So what's so interesting is how combative kind of we all are. And now I'm going to go to Sanders' uh, last point. I think it's trolling. And so what's so interesting is that, so Alan's interpretation of you know playing the devil, like being the devil's advocate, you know, giving the devil's due or whatever. Uh, so it was super different from mine. So my understanding is when somebody says, oh, I'm playing devil's advocate, I'm automatically thinking, oh, this piece of shit is fucking trolling me. So I actually hate that. I hate I hate when people do that, right? So we we had a long drive yesterday and we were talking about this. And so Alan said something like, oh, well, I'm you know, playing devil's advocate. I was like, no, no, no. I was like, are you committing to a stance or are you actually like, or are you just like, you know, being an asshole, right? And he's like, no, no, no. Let me just, you know, kind of explain it to you. And then so he and Mike argued that, no, the reason why we would play devil's advocate is what we're doing is we have sort of arguments in our mind and we're seeing if there are counter arguments to that. So we're looking to see, okay, like, let's say if I present this counter argument will somebody be able to give me something that i haven't thought of myself which i love my understanding was different so here's my experience with people who plays devil's advocates so usually what happens is somebody will say something like i'm playing devil's advocate they'll give you an argument you'll refute the argument and then they'll be like oh well i was just playing devil's advocate and i'm like okay so what you're doing is you're just trying to make me look dumb and now that i've actually won the argument now you're backing off and saying oh i was just kidding anyway but apparently that's not i guess what everybody does so and i love that he did that right so so in a world with lots of trolling yeah some the, the it's easy to associate uh playing devil's advocate with a nasty form of just being contrary yeah but but if you in in philosophy in the world where they train philosophers you're trained to play devil's advocate in a way that's considered good and useful like you just try on maybe uh you try on arguments for size just just to see where they go Mm-hmm. And, and that's an extension of the of the whole scientific attitude, right? Which is let's treat this as a hypothesis, take it seriously long enough to generate some predictions, and then we can test those predictions and come back and decide whether whether we, we should take this hypothesis seriously or not. You can do the same thing with arguments, right? Let's just try on this argument for size and, right. and see how it goes. Um, I'm not trying to be a dick about it. I'm just trying to open our minds to possibilities that might seem silly at first mm-hmm. so, so there's a good way to understand playing devil's advocate and as long as people are doing it in a charitable way to try to promote shared understanding i'm, I'm good with it if you're just trying to use it to as a as a technique for one-upmanship yeah. and just trying to make other people look silly yeah not a fan yeah, and then back away and then be like, oh, no, I was just kidding, man. I don't know why you're taking it so seriously. Yeah, which was not the case, right? right? Uh, no, uh, I mean, I guess we'll spend like another second on this. Uh, I was just uh, talking about uh, cognitive behavioral, well, rather, we were talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. I was just wondering, I was asking sort of or posing the question, you know, is that sort of the only avenue t- to get somebody to uh, go from maybe into, so I guess the issue was, uh, how does somebody who intellectually understands that they have an issue, whether it be with their beliefs or something in, in life, whether they be like, the, how do you bridge the gap between intellectually understanding what it is that you need to change or what it is that you should believe to actually believing it, uh, that kind of a thing? Because uh, I, I suppose I could intellectually understand, oh, uh, I shouldn't be neurotic this is bad for me or i shouldn't be thinking so much i should be in the moment right so let's say you intellectually understand that but then how do you actually feel it so i started to think okay well is cognitive behavioral therapy uh one of many avenues that sort of get there so then i just asked him the question 
which almost suggested that I didn't believe in CBT, which was just essentially just me asking, how do, how do you bridge that gap? No, because you know what it was? Because you said, oh, I'm playing devil's advocate. And for me, that was triggering. I was like, oh, here he goes. I just, well, so, just just to ask that question. Yeah, I know. I know. Just to be able to ask it. Yeah. Right. I mean, we should all guard against being triggered because, right? And and not to point fingers here or something, but a lot of conversations that are fruitful and 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 beneficial for all concerned kind of start to go off the rails when somebody gets triggered. Right. Mm -hmm, right. And so just as it's possible for somebody to be a dick and, and to say something that's really unhelpful, it's also possible to kind of uh, overreact to something yeah. that wasn't really meant maliciously. It was meant in good faith, but it rubbed you the wrong way. Oh, I did overreact. I will I will take that. I will eat that criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and you know, for me, my understanding is, and this is not a justification, but my understanding is because I'm so used to people misusing being a devil's advocate, I'm like, dude, we're not, I'm not going down this road. So, yeah. But you know, this is a good, actually sort of a good example anyway, sort of for the audience, right? Uh, say, say um, you did like in somebody's personal interaction with someone else, you, you sort of overreacted, right? I, I like to, I, I might've said this before on the previous podcast, but I imagine like a, like sort of a tree that has different branches that can go in different ways. Like imagine like a conversation and it can go this way, this way, this way. And yeah. if you overreact, uh, it can go pretty bad. And then right. you could end up having a horrible interaction with that person that has these sort of rippling effects maybe for your relationship or other interactions that you may then also overreact in. Or yes. I suppose if you realized uh, that overreacting might not be in your benefit, maybe there's like a more harmonious uh, path that you could take. And then maybe with that particular person, they'll realize you're just sort of seeking truth or right. something like that. And then you end up having a nice interaction and then that could also have other ripple effects. But it's interesting how you could really diverge in a, in a really bad place if if things get sort of uh toxic or you're not well armed against your your own uh, right. uh reactivity i suppose uh by having that sort of impulse control or or rather the ability to sort of critical think uh, critically think in the moment and by the way can i also just add and also accept that other people probably have good intentions which a lot of times when it comes to arguing i do not <laughs> yeah I, I, I try hard to assume that people are have good intentions. And when I do assume the best of people, often they live up to that expectation. Mm -hmm. So I recommend I, I recommend it. Um, I hear you. It, it is possible to assume that some people mean well and then thereby be taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. um, there's a Dutch historian named Rutger Bregman who's wrote, written a book called Humankind, where he argues that human beings are are vastly more decent than we imagine, given mm -hmm. the diet of stories we tell ourselves through the news and history books, which base, in other words, news, which is all about what went wrong yesterday, and history books, which is all about what went wrong in yesteryear. Um, when we fill our minds with those stories, we tend to have a darker picture of human nature than is really warranted. This mm -hmm. is Bregman's argument. And he argues that he, he has a beautifully uh, eloquent argument for why you should always look for what's best in people, because usually more times than not, it'll bring out the best in them. Mm -hmm. One. Um, and he argues that if you're not so trusting that you're taking advantage, if you're not being so trusting that you aren't taking advantage of one 
once in a while, you're not being trusting enough. Hmm. So in, in other words, if, if you're, if you try to be suspicious enough to right. never be taken advantage of, you also deny yourself lots of good opportunities. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's an, it's an inevitability. Yeah, the, the point I think you're making is that it's not personal. That when you do eventually get taken advantage of, it's because you're literally just living your life. Hmm. There you uh, go. From my perspective, you're making me rethink, actually. Uh, yeah, actually, I kind of do. Uh, see, here's the thing. I, I, I realize that if you are too trusting, you can be taken advantage of, right? Uh, however, it's interesting the way you just frame that. That that almost wants me to, it makes me want to rethink you know, maybe just fully committing to uh, trust. I know it's sort of a personal thing. Wait, like you don't want to run a cult anymore? I don't want to run a cult anymore. No, no, no. Uh, no. Can you tell us now? I'm actually super interested. No, it's just that uh, here's the thing. Like, uh, for example, there's the saying, right? If, if you don't stand for something, you right. know, you'll fall for anything. If mm. you... If you're if you're uh, riding the fence, uh, no. Yeah. If if you're sort of in the middle, mm -hmm. you don't pick a side. Neutrality has consequences, like c certain ideas. But however, I've always been the type of, or or sorry, for the longest time now, I've been the type of person that likes to look at every single perspective, have beliefs, kind of like you said, like house guests. I, I imagine them like sort of just so sort of floating, not trying to be attached to any particular idea, yeah. and. So I try to see the value in every single perspective. So usually, even if let's say I have two people that I know are fighting or something like that, I could just try to say, I see why you're feeling like this. I see why you're feeling like this. And let's try to, you know, integrate that and have some, but you'll never see me sort of pick a, a side. Now, how that relates to the trust thing is that I, I've been criticized or given so much feedback about not picking a particular side, <laughs> even though I still really buy into looking at every perspective mm -hmm. uh, that then at some point I started to say, okay, well then I'm, then I'll be trusting, but obviously not to the point of naivete. Uh, and so, but, but what you said made me think, ah, but then I can't necessarily get the fullness or the richness right. of, you might you know, be depriving yourself of social opportunities because that, that 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 little bit of suspicion you hang on to, so that you're not taken advantage of, so that you're not gullible or naive, um, might be foreclosing a bunch of other social possibilities. That and you may be paying a higher price in the missed social opportunities foregone. Wow! That you would have paid. For, for, oh, Andy, can you say more? <laughs> this is like therapy this is really great this is like therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is awesome no i'm just i didn't expect this to go this way sorry no this is great yeah i mean if you have any obviously anything on your mind that you would be willing to say i actually love this uh yeah i mean i guess so it, compare two people so so you guys are partners in this seize the moment thing and, and imagine you're only just get just starting to get to know each other and you're trying to figure out should i go in with this guy should i invest a lot of time and resources and making this joint venture work suppose, suppose it's just a business you decide you meet this guy named leon and, and he wants to form a widget factory with you and you got to figure out if you trust him or not mm -hmm. so leon number one Basically, just uh, as soon as he figures out what the right thing to do is, he just does that. Okay. So he, he just asks himself in any in any situation, he just says, "What's the right thing to do?" And then he does the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, now Leon number two um, asks, "Well, okay, what's right? What's wrong? But also, what's best for me?" 
And let's take that into consideration too. And, and if doing the right thing is too costly for me, uh, maybe I should rethink what I should do. Mm-hmm. All right. So this, I guess this is the way I've framed it here. Uh, Leon, you're, you're the, you're the guy who could go either way on that. Um, mm-hmm. So Alan, you get to decide which, which of the two versions of Leon would you rather partner with? I see. I see. Of course, the one who just straight goes to doing the right thing as opposed to having so many thoughts on, on his mind. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know that, I suppose, but I, I, I guess I, I, I see your point that it would come off in the behavior anyway, right? Somebody who's thinking all those things or having those doubts or hesitations, they would act, if not... Uh, if not very differently, at least subtly differently, which again, kind of going back to that, going in sort of divergent routes or, or rather divergent paths, I, I could see that going um, a completely different way than somebody who just does the right thing right away. Right. Yeah. So, so it, it, actually, it's Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher who who, who planted this. He has a thought experiment where, um, you, you know, compare the person who just does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And the person who does the right thing by accident because it happens to be convenient right. or um, useful or whatever, mm. you really want to be partnering. You want to you want to surround yourself by the first type of guy mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're less likely to take advantage of you when the conditions are right. right. Mm. But you know, here's here's what this I think gets a little bit tricky. I'm actually I'm going to use you as an example. Uh, so what's so interesting is so Alan gives everybody the benefit of the doubt. And I think he does this because he genuinely cares about people, relationships. Uh, he wants to kind of know what's going on with them. Like all of these are good things, right? But then we kind of come up against somebody like an RFK, right? So Alan and I actually went a little bit back and forth on this for a while. Uh, so I mean, to me, it's clear that RFK said some pretty fucking anti-Semitic shit. And then on top of that, I mean, I think he's, he's pretty misinformed and not only misinformed, he's pretty stubborn and unwilling to change his mind. But for a while, Alan's like, well, you know, I want to give him a chance. I want to listen to him in long form. Like I know you listen to a few podcasts with him and i appreciate that right but here's my thinking right what's sort of the greater good here is it and you know you could disagree with me obviously but what's the kind of greater good is it sort of giving somebody like rfk the benefit of the doubt or is it protecting other people from his views right so this is actually a very good example oh that's a tough that's a no yeah that's a tough one yeah Yeah, so uh of course and there's the issue of platforming yeah yeah, somewhat right right, right, of course but um so yeah uh i mean so I saw that he was going to be on, let's say, uh, Rogan, right on Rogan's podcast. So uh, I check him out there. He he's like from the way he uh, speaks and presents himself. I was thinking, ah, okay. Uh, one, I kind of like how he presents himself. There's something genuine about him. I started to see these certain characteristics that I was thinking, okay, I I I, I like him so far. Mm-hmm. Then uh, then I'm seeing how his his views on his vaccine views and all that and then the arguments that he's using to sort of support uh his ideas which on the surface uh seemed rational however i have to realize and then this is this is probably where mental immunity comes in a little bit uh or a lot i had to realize okay i'm not actually first of all i haven't read all the research right. on vaccines i am not qualified to interpret all of this data Right. However, he see, however, from my base, like uh, intuition, I'm like, ah, but he he just seems to have a sort of a rationalization or an answer to everything that sort of explains 
why he sees things the way he does, has views on Fauci and uh, his interactions with him. He's personally dealt with this person, that person, and he, he knows all these people. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah. So uh, then uh, then I, I just it's not like I was like uh, thinking, OK, I like this guy, I would vote for him or anything like that. But then I was I was still thinking, OK, well. He still seems likable. I, I hope that if he's proven wrong by a Peter Hotez or whoever, if there's any kind of a debate in the future, whatever, uh, that, you know, he gains more knowledge from it and then doesn't espouse certain ideas that uh, may not be true uh, yeah. or that aren't true. However, it is actually interesting to like uh, look at how. So when I first saw RFK and I didn't even hear the vaccine uh, views, I just heard him speaking about like uh maybe his family uh his views on um the russia ukraine war right. that kind of a thing that was also and, problematic so whatever so i started hearing that kind of a thing and uh i didn't i didn't think anything bad of him i started to actually like him a little bit yeah. um and then well, oh, I'm sorry. By the way, I'm not saying that I I got all of the knowledge of yeah, yeah. his views. I'm just saying, like, as I heard bits of of him, uh, yeah. but then as I got more information, let's say from Leon, let's say I'm actually doing research on what it is that he's uh, saying, then I'm like, ah, okay, I guess his credibility isn't really there, right? Right. So then I had to kind of pull back from how kind of sold I was on him, and yeah. that's that's at least good from sort of. Um, the perspective of not being um, att too attached to right. this person I initially thought I liked, right? I, I got more information and then was able to sort of distance myself, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, th this whole uh, Hotez, RFK, Rogan kerfuffle, uh, was a few weeks ago now, a couple of weeks ago now. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually wrote a long Twitter thread on this yeah i loved it by the way that was one of my favorite threads of the year yeah I well it. thank you thank you <laughs> yeah i mean so here's the story for those who may not have followed it um peter hotez is a respected virologist scientist who's studied vaccine rfk went on to the rogan podcast and challenged uh hotez to a debate rogan offered hotez a hundred thousand dollars to come on and debate RFK about vaccines. Hotez declined because he didn't want to give RFK platform. And when you go up and get when you when you're a real scientist who's paid his paid his dues and really to really understand how evidence and argument work, and and then to and then to have somebody who's who doesn't argue fair, who doesn't play fair with evidence, to have them challenge you to debate. Sometimes it's wiser to just say no thanks. I'm, I, I don't want to put you on a platform alongside uh, a respected scientist mm -hmm. um, as though you two are equally worthy of attention because that mm -hmm. misleads people. So Hotez declined, um, and I both supported Hotez's decision to not debate RFK, but I also think it's a bad look for science to to decline to debate stuff. Uh, it's central to science that we were open to objections and that we're willing to consider them. Um, the problem is that if you spew objections at the uh, fast enough, the way RFK does, or or to spew misinformation fast enough, you can't refute it all. Now, have you ever heard of the, uh, uh, what's the uh, the name of it? Um, that there's a principle called, that, that says, uh, 
the amount of effort required to refute nonsense yeah. is order of magnitude greater than the amount of effort needed to create it. Right, right. I think that's from Hume. Yeah, uh, probably comes from Hume. But so, somebody has a somebody got his name attached to that mm-hmm. principle, and it's just hard to give uh, a prominent forum to somebody who dishes out misleading factoid after misleading factor so much that you can't possibly counter them all in one conversation. Right. Right. But I do think we need more experts on who understand how evidence and argumentation are supposed to work. Mm -hmm. We're willing to step into these debates and basically call out the nonsense peddlers and to show people in real time um, how they're misleading people. Right. We, somehow we need to do that better so that not so it doesn't look as though scientists are trying to duck a fight or, or trying to duck a fair debate. Yeah, it would be nice to um, be able to sort of educate him, right? If he is genuine in his... Well, can, can I, I got to push back against this man. So, okay, going back to the anti-Semitic remark, right? So, I, look, if RFK misspoke, all he had to say was just like, oh, hey, guys, no, I'm really sorry. I misspoke. I shouldn't have said that. He blamed the media for misquoting him. That didn't happen. So how truthful is the guy? Uh, I I don't I don't know. Yeah, right. I'm not, I'm actually not aware of. Oh, yeah. Right. He so he's been like on the Twitter barrage, like in terms of like attacking the media. He said, yeah. He's like, I never made those remarks. I'm Jewish myself. I would never say anything like that. The media's misquoting me. They're attacking me. Yada yada. And his followers are saying the same thing. They're like, yeah. He never said that. The media's misquoting him. That's not true. Yeah, um, I didn't. I I don't think Alan was trying to commit himself to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Alan was. Well, I mean, I think what the way I, what I heard Alan saying was he wonders whether RFK would really listen and learn in real time rather than just try to win converts, right? right? Yeah, doing no because the attitude of you know I'm here to listen and learn from you just as I hope you'll listen and learn from me. That attitude is critical to science, um, but it's not the the attitude that's rewarded the most in our online digital world. If you're confident, you spew out lots of answers, don't pause to let other people ask questions. That's the way you win a lot of attention on the internet today. But it's not how you think well, and it's not how you get get, get at the truth. And so we need to think about redesigning social media, re- redesign redesigning the online environment so that the voices most worth listening to rise to the top rather than the voices that don't deserve listening to rise right. to the top. Yeah, I, I wonder. So, are you aware of those? Uh, what is it? Uh, Pang, uh, Pangburn classics? Not maybe Pangburn. Sorry. So there was this. There were these debates between like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris. Uh, some. Uh, yeah, this was a couple Eric, of years ago. So this, yeah. this was years ago, and what they would do on these uh, debates is they would do this. Uh, I, uh, something called steel manning, right? So they would have a mediator. Uh, one person would present their point. The other side would try to um, explain their understanding of the other side's point and then give their uh, refutation. And then nice. they would kind of do that back and forth, right? Until the end of the debate right. um, yeah. to reach some sort of greater understanding. And I suppose this was viewed by a, a bigger audience. And then I suppose it was on them to sort of integrate um the information right Right. i I wonder if uh, something like that could be done um i suppose uh in in future cases where you know maybe maybe just to educate these people who are higher up i love the idea alan and and i think uh, i'll have to check out this pangburn thing because i haven't haven't 
done it. I do know that there have been efforts to try to produce healthier online debates. And um, it, generally speaking, it's best to turn a debate into a dialogue if you can. So right. debates are all about trying to win, but real understand, uh, real thinking and real attempts to the kind of thinking worth taking seriously is is focused on trying to deepen your understanding. <laughs> and sometimes yeah. that means backing off of claims you made before and, mm -hmm. and showing humility, even though that might cost you points in the eyes of your audience. Right. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want to check out this Pangburn thing. I do know that the steel manning technique. So uh, for those not familiar with the term, straw manning is when you take a, a weak kind of um, weakened version of somebody's argument and then poke fun at it, ridicule mm -hmm. it, and make it look silly. Straw manning, steel manning is when you take a person's argument, make it as strong as you possibly can, and then try to address it fairly. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's the way we should all be taught to argue. And so if this Pangburn outfit was actually having their participants model steel manning technique, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, uh, I'll have to see whether they lived up to that expectation. I mean, I, I've been asked to speak to participate in a number of debates with um, defenders of of the Christian religion, um, mm. and uh, I'm I'm not a belie believer in the Christian God, so I often take the opposite stance. But I always ask that that it be a you know constructive discussion, uh, and constructive dialogue rather than a debate, and. Most of the time, Christian apologists like that are willing to do that. And it's been a largely a good experience for me. Um, but I know that some people who are a hell of a lot smarter than I am, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris among them, have started to decline invitations to debate Christian apologists because they don't think because they think that gives those views the university platform that they don't, they don't deserve. Right, right. And I remember yeah. mentioning this uh, when we had Leon. So we talked about the Bill Nye Ken Ham debate. So the thing is, for me, it was pretty influential. At the time, I was a creation, uh, not a creation. I guess I wasn't a creationist, but I was anti-evolution. So I don't know what I was. I don't think I was anything. But I was like, no, evolution's garbage. But the thing is, at the time, I remember what was so what was so terrible about the debate was Ken Ham said something along the lines of, he said, no, no, I believe in the evidence. He said, I'm the guys. I'm not against the evidence. It's just that Bill Nye thinks the evidence points to evolution, and I think the evidence points to creation. So I'm like. Oh my God, man, how unfair is that? So I guess that's the main sort of qualm or my main problem with the debates is that essentially you can take the evidence and you could twist it into your own belief system. And it's not that difficult to do. Well, and well, and there's another moment, famous moment from that Ham Nye debate, which I talk about in my book. Um, the moderator at the end asks, so gentlemen, could you each tell me what will change your mind? And Bill Nye said, evidence. Give yeah. me evidence that evolution isn't true and I'll change my mind, all right? Mm -hmm. Um, it, if evolution isn't the way things really unfolded, you might find the fossils of rabbits in the stratum of rock associated with the Cambrian period. And th that would just blow our evolutionary narrative out of the water. We'd have to rethink a whole bunch of things. Right. So he gave, gave some concrete examples of what would force him to, to compel him to rethink his views. And then Ken Ham, the Christian apologist, was asked, okay, how about you? And he said, nothing. Nothing's going to change my mind. Um, the Bible is inerrant, and that's my bottom line, and and, and I'm sticking to it. 
Right. Uh, he was asked to exhibit the extent of his open-mindedness and he doubled down on his closed-mindedness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So as we begin to wrap up, Andy, uh, the last question, and I think I guess this would be probably one of the most important ones. So what are you hoping to accomplish with the mental, mental immunity project? Yeah. Thanks for bringing us back there. Um, yeah. So the mental immunity project is, is an attempt to take what scientists, uh, some of the best scientists have learned about the mind and its ability to spot and resist bad information mm-hmm. and turn it into practical tools we can all use to protect ourselves, protect our loved ones, protect our friends, and to help them think better so that none of us, I mean, almost everybody has a family member who's fallen in with a cult of some kind or another these mm-hmm. days, QAnon or cult of Trump or whatever. And a lot of families are suffering as a result. Mm-hmm. But, but we don't have to It's possible to talk through our political differences in ways that are mutually respectful and affirming and that build love and, and, and connection in families. And we can learn again how to have those conversations. Um, and it turns out that learning how to have those conversations is also learning how to think mm-hmm. and learn how to think well. Uh, so uh, I hope your listeners will go to mentalimmunityproject.org where we've... Uh, compiled a lot of resources for learning how to think in this uh, nonpartisan, open-minded way that can accelerate everybody's learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's uh, it's really exciting to be seeing that we can take the art of critical thinking to a whole new level by understanding the mind's uh, immune system and how it works. Right. And there's a, I think there's a deep paradigm shift coming that's going to change the way all of us think. And those of us who, and those who are willing to learn the basics of how to care for their minds, defenses, right. Right, right. And, to, and to put them to work, um, they're going to be the ones who thrive in our digital hyper-connected era because they know how to filter out the good stuff from the bad stuff. So uh, we have some wonderful resources online there. I hope people will check it out and um, I hope you'll get involved with our whole mental immunity revolution because we think it's uh, it's the future. I love it. And yeah, and the part of the book that stood out for me, and I still use it, and I actually use this aspect of the book with my patients. So there's this part, I actually didn't even know about this before I read your book. So fundamentally, there's a shift in logical thinking where you go from, okay, why do you believe that to why do you now doubt it? And I was like, yes, that makes so much sense. These hard-won truths that we have as a society, and I mean, this happens a lot in therapy just because, I mean, we deal with distorted thinking. And so the question a lot of times I would ask my patients is like, well, okay, I mean, so we have years on top of years of sort of evidence, apparently, you know, that says that this is true, right? And I would say for the most part, people seem to believe it, right? It seems like there's uh, these people are fairly credible. They're coming from legitimate sources. So now I would ask, yeah, why would you doubt that? And I think that shift in perspective is so important because what happens is, and I think why these, a lot of times the debates are failures to whatever extent, is because a lot of times still people feel like they're the scientists, the philosophers, etc. still feel as though the burden of proof is on them. But you argue in your book that, no, 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 man, after decades, after some point, the burden of proof shifts. So like we would say something for like a flat earth or a flat earth or we would say well no dude it's now on you to prove it because we've already kind of established that the earth is round and obviously there's a sphere there uh so you you're gonna have to figure out a way to prove it it's not on us anymore and i love that that was one of the best parts of the book um, I'm, I'm glad you glad you picked that out yeah that's uh uh both uh 
Uh, I mean, the simple idea that the burden of proof shifts at some time, and sometimes it's the naysayer who has to provide reasons against. It's not always the, the yay-sayer who has to provide reasons for. Sometimes it's the naysayer who has to provide reasons against. That helps to sort of balance dialogue so that it can work properly. And I try to show that a whole lot of philosophical work to try to understand how thinking should work doesn't appreciate that mechanism for balancing the burden of proof. Um, so I'm, I'm really pleased that you picked that out, Leon, because uh, it took me a long time to to get and gain clarity on that. And I'm really proud that that uh, finally came into focus for me. And I'm glad glad it's useful for you and your, your, your clients. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems so counterintuitive. That's the thing, because again, if you're trying to prove a point, the idea is that it's on you. And so when people say, well, no, actually, it's now on you to try to debunk it. It's like, wait, what? That's not how, oh, wow, that is how logic works. So yeah, I love it. It's, it's super fascinating. Yeah. Uh, okay. So as we wrap up, Alan, final questions for Andy? Uh, yes. If, if we wanted to follow you specifically, and of course, uh, buy the book, uh, where can we do that? Yeah. So the, the book is titled Mental Immunity, and it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and pretty much, I think, all the other book vendors online and uh, in, in bookstores. Um, uh, I have uh, a webpage, uh, andynorman.org, uh, where you can learn more about my work, my uh, my writings, my research, my uh, my my consulting, and and uh, uh, I offer workshops on on these things as well. So, I love it. Uh, but uh, but we're really excited now about the, the Mental Immunity Project and providing lots of interesting ways for people to get involved. So if, if you uh, believe that, uh, if you want to be part of the solution to our infodemic problem, check out mentalimmunityproject.org and, uh, and get in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Andy, thank you so much for coming on. These are always awesome. some of our favorite episodes. <laughs> Been a pleasure, gentlemen. Good luck. And thanks All for right. having me. You got it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. So everyone, if you would like to follow us, you can always follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram, on Twitter, where it sees underscore podcast, like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.